Welcome to the Speaking Podcast. You can find all our episodes on speakingpodcast.com. We're also on BitChute and YouTube. You'll find the links in the podcast description. I'm also a podcasting coach because I've got four other podcasts, the meditation, the learn Polish, the crypto, and the awakening is the fourth one. And you'll find everything on bio.link forward slash podcaster. Today, my guest, not only a speaker, blogger, author, and a coach, please welcome Laurie Smith. Thank you. Nice to be here with you. So you might let the listeners know, who's Laurie? I am a speaking coach, a speaker, an author, like you said. I'm also an actor in my spare time, which is where a lot of my speaking influence actually comes from being in the theater since I was about seven years old and extracting all of the magic from it and leaving the less empowering stuff there so i'm doing the work for the speakers excellent and i believe because i've watched some of the videos i believe it was your mother that actually kind of saw you you know playing and got you into the acting which is fantastic at that age to you know seven years of age to to get into acting yeah absolutely i was uh, pretending to be a character from the brady bunch which was a 1970s television show uh called cindy brady her hair is blonde minus brown or was more brown. And I had pinned my hair up carefully in little curls to make it look like hers. And I had started out act, uh, you know, playing games with my friends and then they all wanted to go to the pool. And I felt like, well, I wanna finish the story. So you guys go to the pool and I'll meet you there later. And that's when my mother found me and said, I think we need to find you a theater group to be a part of. Brilliant. Because like what I've seen, I've seen a lot of the speakers over the years, and I always find that it's the ones that have an acting background. They, I think maybe the confidence as well, but they tend to realize that there's more than just a voice. Yeah, there's a voice is an important part, and then you want the voice to be connected to the whole body. And if we've done some training in theater, a lot of theater training is helping to get the whole instrument mind, soul, heart, and body to be aligned and working together. So with kind of like the projecting of the voice and the breath work, I presume you've, I mean, because that's kind of done in acting because not always would you have the microphone, but it's definitely a benefit later when you're speaking. Yes, absolutely. And that was when I was a young actor from when I got to college, probably 18 and 19 years old, I was actually very quiet and very shy. And that was something that I had to work on that lasted in some ways, the shyness lasted until I was in my thirties, but I did learn when I was on the stage, how to breathe how to use my instrument. And I remember one of the best bits of information that I got when I knew, you know, essentially in some ways it's not that complicated. We're all born doing it. And society is telling us, don't be too big. Don't be too emotional. Don't take up too much space. The emotional is a big one, which everybody gets in one form or another. And we suppress our natural breathing and then try to use muscle to fill a 500 seat theater with no microphone. And I had learned, okay, you inhale, 
And then you use that air to support your voice. And it was still sort of mechanical. It was hard for me to do that and act at the same time at about 19 years old. And a voice instructor came up to me and said, make the need of the character more important. And as soon as I did that, my it sort of became a habit to inhale and then fill the 500 seat theater because the need of the character was so important that I really wanted to get the character's point across. And all of a sudden I could be heard in the back of the theater, even if the need was high for the character, but they were supposed to be having a private conversation that no one else could hear. And it's interesting because you mentioned, you know, you were kind of nervous up into your 30s with the speaking. And obviously, when you're on stage, you would have overcome that. And it's a different kind of, it's still speaking, but it's strange. Because for me, I was late to the game with the public speaking, but I was doing martial arts and that was no problem to me. And I've talked to a lot of different speakers as well. And it's the same thing. It's it, like, so obviously we're our own block you know, it's not that the ability, it's just that we have the thought process that makes the fair to kick in. Yeah. And I, I had felt somewhere in the background, even when I was acting in the early years that I was kind of hiding in the character that I couldn't fully be myself in my real life. I couldn't express myself and take up that much space in real life but I was allowed to do that as long as I was playing a character. And then in my thirties, I got a, a life coach and I went through a leadership training program. And up until that point, it had kind of been like, who I am in theater is allowed to bleed into the rest of my life. And then that sort of got flipped on its head where I was working on me in my whole life coming home to myself, showing up fully, um, speaking my truth in my personal life, on a stage as a speaker, as a teacher, and then that was allowed to ripple in and affect my acting. And of course it did. I became, there was another layer of comfort from speaking as me on stages that actually made people who knew me when they saw me as a character, they said, wow, you know, I thought you were comfortable up there before, but now you look completely at home. And one friend who knew me and was also a videographer came to video one of my speeches so I could have some material. And she was the first one who said, you look more comfortable up there than you do on stage which was a nice turning point and nice feedback because I was so in it that day, I wouldn't have known that that change had happened if she hadn't actually said it aloud. I've just recently, cause uh, I was at Mind Valley University in Tallinn and I got to speak and it was the first time in my life. Cause it's, I think six years ago, five years ago, where I started doing Toastmasters and, and I was terrified prior to that and then just kind of really went deep in. But it was the first time that I had zero nervousness because mm. no matter what competitions, even getting into the final, I think there was always something. And it's the first time in my life that I didn't, I wasn't nervous. And I was kind of shocked. But at the same time, I was happy going, ooh, this is great. Yeah. Wow. That's great. So 
I suppose because I like there's listeners that are one trying to get speaking and there's two others that are just constantly trying to improve so I suppose through your experience, your speaking experience, you might kind of, the things that you've learned, the mistakes that you've made, like a little germ, because it will help others. Ooh, juicy. What mistakes have I made? Well, I can say, since you said Toastmasters, you flashed me back to when I realized I was coaching speakers and I wasn't speaking that much myself because I was more interested in helping other people. And then I realized, oh, hey, I have a message to share. You know, for me, speaking is about really coming home to ourselves. Um, it's a way to transform back to our full selves. And I realized that I had a message that I wanted to share too. And I had joined a a group called Pro Toasties. It's no longer in existence, but it was a Toastmasters group for people who were professional speakers. And the first time I spoke for that group, because I felt like there was an extra amount of pressure that, oh, now the speaking coach is going to go, I did everything that I try to help others not to do. I was far more concerned with my content, which I think it was a version of my story. You know, I know the content. This is what my speaking clients do. I was very in my head. I was pushing really hard to connect. Uh, in some of my work, I talk about our, my tendency early in life to show up as a porcelain doll version of myself or as like a deranged mannequin version of myself that's pushing far too hard. And that day, I just let the pressure and the inner critic voice take over, and I could not have been more in deranged mannequin mode. And I remember eventually realizing that someone in the front row was sort of leaning back, and he almost looked like a cartoon character with his hair blown back. And I couldn't, at that time, I couldn't stop it while it was happening. Once I got off on that foot, it was like I was stuck in the deranged mannequin, and I knew sort of near the end and took a breath and pulled back a little bit, but it was nothing like the speaker that I can be and great learning because, you know, I can tell my clients anything that's going on for you. I'm sure I've done it. I've either done it as a speaker or I've done it as an actor, or I've definitely done it as a human being. And I love actually, because uh, I've seen your outtakes, which is brilliant because, you know, you're showing the vulnerability, but the fun side as well. And I see that when you were like making a mistake, you were kind of blowing the lips or something just to. So is that a warm up that you use and do you use that prior to going on stage as well? I do. It It is part of a warm up. Um uh, Fluttering the lips like a motorboat. So you get the air going um i don't always use that one with my clients anymore and what is great about it is that it, it starts to warm up the lips so you don't need to do as many tongue twisters because you've warmed them up by doing the motorboat thing and uh, we really want to be supporting our voice, mostly with breath and with a little bit of core muscles. 
And when you trill your tongue, which I can't do, or do the motorboat lips, it it forces the lower abdomen to sort of kick in more. If, you're, if your body is trying to support the sound with a different muscle, that sound is harder to do. So for my body, when I do this, my throat gets out of it. My abdomen kicks in in a very kind of dexterous way and supports the sound. Um, so you saw a lot of that in the outtakes video because for me, it has become calming and releasing to do that. So because it's, I've logged so many hours doing it in warmups, when I'm in the middle of something that isn't going well and I need sort of that next fresh breath, that next chance to start again, that tells my body like, have a good time, let it go. It's light and easy, get the air flowing. So you saw a lot of that in that video. Brilliant. So I know you do like uh, keynotes and maybe online stuff as well. So like, could talk about maybe the keynotes that you have done in person. And then if you've done, I'm not sure if you've done any online, but just kind of the transition in the last kind of crazy years. Yeah, um, I like to say that I was, I knew about Zoom before it was fashionable. I, uh, I have given keynotes. Um, I, and I, as a theater actress, I'm a live theater actress. I'm not, I had a film and television agent years ago. I do love the thrill of live people. And Zoom sort of sits somewhere in between because when I present on Zoom, there are people there and yet there is a screen in between us. So it's sort of live theater and live keynote speeches. Zoom is somewhere in the middle and doing film and television would be all the way at the other end of the spectrum. I love the thrill of a live audience. Um, one of the things that I believe can is what I love about it and can be a strength is that we can feel what they're feeling when we're there live with them much more easily. In fact, sometimes if we're feeling nervous or a lot of sensation, it may not even be coming from us as the speaker. The people in the crowd may have so much going on that we're sort of picking up on their energy and then our inner critic is saying, why am I so nervous today? Well, it's not nervous. It's a lot of sensation coming from the crowd. And if we know how to harness that, it's part of what makes us charismatic in front of that crowd. Zoom, there's a little bit less of their stuff for us to pick up on. And sometimes because the camera is only a foot and a half away from me, myself and other speakers will kind of pull our volume, our energy and our body language in and make it really small, which is the pitfall of Zoom is that I'm now talking to you as if you're a foot away from my face because this flat device has you a foot away from my face. But I may not be as alive as I am if I, if I intend to allow my voice to ring off of the walls of the room that I'm in. If I look at you and also take in the space that is behind your head in your space, 
then I'm more alive. And I believe that people out there can feel us more when we actually allow our energy and our body language and our volume to take up the space of the room that we're actually in. Um, I have felt transformation happen in both places when I'm doing keynotes on both or my own workshops. And the in-person transformations feel like it's like an instantaneous, powerful moment of a shift. And Zoom kind of feels like it has a slower burn to the room kind of transforming to a different energy or a different emotion. And that may very well be because the device is actually making it separate for the people out there. They may feel like it's exactly the same. And for me, it feels like it's a little bit less of a flash moment and more of a slow burn to the room shifting. With, when, with the acting then, like, has there been times where you've done, like, I say, play long term? Because, like, I was just thinking there that it must be hard to kind of have normal life as well between friends, family and everything. Because most of the time, maybe there's two shows during the day, but normally they're at night, which means it's kind of unsociable. Yeah, I think that's part of why starting my own business has been the right thing for me. That's why I originally started it. So I could act during the act during the night and control my own schedule during the day. And when I'm in a play longer term where, you know, there's three or four months between the rehearsal process and the performance, I will slightly shift my schedule so that I'm working a little later or I'm starting seeing clients just as early, but I've got space for a nap or the really long commute to the theater built in. Okay. Yeah. And it, it's also probably why I found Zoom faster than the rest of humanity, um, because it meant I could keep working from wherever I was. And I've I've driven over to where a theater is in order to avoid a commute and led a three hour class from a friend's house. Um, and I also really wanted to work with the people that were kindred spirits, the people that were really meant to be my clients rather than just, well, who will come to a workshop down the street? And I did a test probably 10 years ago. I led a class with a couple of people in a local uh, fitness studio and I led a class on Zoom. And at the time I was convinced that the in-person was going to be a better experience. And it wasn't. The people that showed up on Zoom were really ideal clients of mine. And the people that showed up for the in-person class were sort of people that I had convinced to take it in order to run this experiment. And that was the last time I needed to do something, needed to do something in person. Not that I don't still do that on occasion. And yet in order to support my theater habit, in order to work with the people that I wanna work with, I've been on Zoom since before the pandemic. Very interesting. And with the coaching then, because I see there's this different certificates and stuff like that. So 
like I forget the the PCC International Coaching Federation and everything because you know some people they go away they become a coach after a two week course but I think that's a, a more advanced you might tell me about the coaching journey and about the different certificates that you've got yeah I I left my day job many years ago and first went and got a master's degree in theater in acting thinking I would go become a theater instructor. And I did initially start teaching acting and voice for actors. Um, before I started teaching voice for actors, I got certified in something called Fitzmorris voice work, which I feel is, it's what I called at the time, the new wave of voice for actors. There was kind of an, an old guard of voice for actors here in the United States, which was, there was kind of in the, a 1930s sort of sound where everyone sounded the same and it was about having a good sound. And that had never been my favorite. When I went back to graduate school, I stumbled on Fitzmorris voice work, which was part of the new guard, which was about opening up your instrument so that you can make any sound and you can play any character. And I'm a character actress, love doing different dialects and things. So that was where I found my home. Then I started teaching acting and voice for acting and uh, teaching at a community college. And a woman about my age, a student about my age, came up to me and said, I think you're a coach. And I knew she didn't mean football or soccer. <laughs> Uh, but I didn't know what coaching was. So I said, tell me more. And then found myself in my first coaching class, probably two weeks later, and knew within 15 minutes that that was the final piece of what I was here to create, even though I couldn't have articulated what that was. It just felt like home. And what she had said was that I was teaching differently than the other theater instructors rather than having the, the professor style of kind of professing my knowledge from a podium, she said, you're more kind of interactive and in it with us. And when you use your intuition, you, you look like you're reading your students' minds and the performances that you're drawing out are better than the ones they're giving in their other classes. And then she said, but you're not trusting yourself because you don't know what this way of working is. And when you don't trust yourself and you try to do it their way, it's really not working for you. <laughs> so I went to a place called, uh, was called the Coaches Training Institute. Now it's called the Coactive Institute. Did all of their classes, did their certification. Um, and I am now, 14 years into my coaching journey, I think. And I've taken continuing education. You know, there's a certain amount that you have to do in order to be certified by the International Coaching Federation. I've taken a certain amount of coaching every three year period. And about two years ago, a year or two ago, I became a master certified coach. Um, you know, coaching is something that gets made fun of a lot on television shows. And part of that is that the coaching federation, if you're 
certified by the International Coaching Federation, you've, you didn't just put in two weeks of work. You've done something, you've passed an oral exam and a written exam, and you're continuing to stretch your coaching muscle. And it's, it's hard for me when it gets made fun of on television, because I do know there are people out there who just decide they're going to become a life coach. And there are also coaches who've trained and coaching is one, one thing in my journey that really helped to change my life and get me where I am today. So I have a hard time. I have a complicated relationship with those jokes on television shows. Like what is it because i mean the skill set is kind of yours as such with with your kind of life journey what is it that these programs do because to be honest I, i've never gone through one of them i've listened to different people on different things and i know some people they go in they pay 10 bucks to get a certificate and and they become the coach because of that which is hurting the industry i believe but yeah. like what kind of support and what structures and systems that justify because if i if i look at say the project i I, i've got the pmp before that became popular i think 99 i i done the pmp and to be honest with you the magazine i don't enjoy it and a lot of the stuff i think it's just a money racket just to get the the yearly fees out of you just to have the qualification behind it so i'm interested in seeing the actual benefit with some of these organizations yeah well coaching is different than consulting or therapy or mentoring. Um, I, I did a video on this mentoring a while back. A mentor or a consultant or even a therapist, they're all experts. And if you've hired a mentor or you've asked someone to be your mentor or you've hired someone to be a consultant, you're doing that because you want them to use their expertise to diagnose problems, to advise you on what you should do from their expertise. Coaching is where either everybody's an expert or nobody's an expert. And what that means is if I'm coaching someone, I'm an expert on coaching. They're an expert on their life. They're an expert on their message if they're a speaker that they want to get out into the world. And the coaching program that I went through really helps you to understand the role of a coach is not to listen. You know, a client comes with, I'd like to coach about X today. The normal human response is to listen for a few minutes and then solve their problem. And the one that they use that's almost the easiest to understand is someone comes in and say, hey, I'd like to get in shape and maybe lose a few pounds. And a mentor, or a consultant will listen for a few moments and then say, okay, here's my prescription. Run for 30 minutes on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. On Tuesdays and Thursdays, you're going to lift weights and this is what you're going to eat. And that'll help you lose 10 pounds and get in better shape. That's not how a coaching conversation goes. Coaches don't advise they tend to ask more questions, powerful questions to help the client get clear on what they want, get clear on what might be blocking them from getting to what they want. So there's a lot of asking powerful questions and also naming what they're seeing. 
uh, almost like holding up a mirror to the client. This is what I just heard you say. Or I noticed your energy got really excited when you started talking about that particular kind of exercise. Um, so that when you come out of a coaching conversation, you may very well decide to run 30 minutes on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And yet it's come from within you because the coach has helped to sort of pull out your own wisdom from within. And every individual school has some modalities and some tips and tricks in order to do that. The early schools are very focused, you know, the ones that help you get your initial certification, they're very focused on helping you to let go of that, okay, I'm going to listen in order to answer you. I'm going to listen and then I'm going to tell you what you should do. They're breaking that human habit and helping you to access your own intuition as a coach, helping you to know what a powerful question is, helping you to read what's going on with the person, some of which might be natural gifts. I think that's what my student was talking about and having them say, this is how intuition works, blew my mind at the time because it was what I was doing when things were going well with my students, when it felt timeless and trying to diagnose the problem and make recommendations wasn't even my style. And that's part of what coaching programs are doing is really helping you to expand your skills as a coach and let go of mentoring and advising. Excellent, yeah, very good. And do they help as well with say the marketing side in people, you know, how to attract the right clients? Does it take that into account? I would imagine some schools do. Um, in the Coactive Institute at the time that I went through it, which was many years ago now, they didn't do that as part of their initial programs with the exception of when they did things in person. Uh, on the last day of classes, they did what they called a parking lot where every question that everyone had had that wasn't already answered in the curriculum was answered on Sunday afternoons. And that's when a lot of the marketing questions would come up. Uh, but it wasn't a marketing training per se. There are coaching companies that do that. And uh, there are a couple of people that I recommend. There's a, a place called the Thrive Academy for anyone here who's gone to the Coactive Training Institute. The people that run Thrive graduated from the Coactive Training Institute. And I think noticed, hey, that's great training, but you're not really helping us to run a business. So we'll start a business that really appeals to all of those people coming out of those coaching schools. And we're trained in that too. And we'll create a whole business helping you go from, hey, I just got my coaching certification. Uh, they actually work with more than coaches, but other businesses like acupuncturists, massage therapists, where you, you learn how to do the craft, but in most schools, most massage schools, most coaching schools, you're not really learning how do I as a coach now run a business and Thrive Academy, I discovered them way too late in my journey. I'd already made all of the mistakes, <laughs> uh, 
but I do recommend them to others who are looking for help, or I recommend getting a coach, um, a business-focused coach. And I know you've written a book, but I also see that you're a blogger. So did the blogs become part of the book or like how's your journey with that? I had an intuitive urge to write a book. And I think I had blogged a little bit at that point, um, but I wasn't the kind of blogger who did it regularly at that point. So my book came more from making myself sit in front of the computer. Initially, I had this intuitive urge to write it and then was immediately resistant and it took a few years. And I remember in the early part of the writing, making dates with myself to write and forcing myself initially, like you're gonna, you're gonna sit here for an hour. And if you don't write, that's fine but you're not allowed to check email. You're not allowed to do anything else. You have to sit in the writing space for one hour every day. And eventually really doing that, my resistance got out of the way because I was so bored. I started to actually write the book. I may be blogging my way to a second book somewhere down the road. And there was a point after I had written the book where I started writing more regularly and things that were in the book were being repurposed into blogs. And now I've shifted and changed so much. There's either a new edition of my first book that's gonna come out of me soon or possibly a, a completely new book. I'm not sure which of those it is yet. And I do feel like I'm blogging and or vlogging my way to a new book at this point. Did you self-publish or did you go with a publisher? I self-published. I was afraid that a publisher, I have a very, um, it's important. The message was very important to me. And at times I feel unique, like nobody, nobody whose mainstream is gonna get me or what I'm up to. And because it was a possibility, I decided, well, let's not, let's not even go through that battle. Just go ahead and self-publish, get your own. Um, I had a couple of different people who edited it in different ways for me. Um, and I'm glad that I did. And I also eight years further down the road, believe that there are probably ways to make sure that the, the nugget that you have can be done in mainstream media. There's a way to sort of yes and mainstream publishing because I know a lot of people who have not self-published and come out with really beautiful, magical books. I didn't believe that at the time. I wanted it to be 100% my voice. Yeah, I believe the self-publishing is a better route as well, like, you know, because I see a lot of people getting shafted going down the other way. And just uh, yeah. finally, because I, I like to know people's social media because yeah, we're bombarded and it's like with all the different things. Just what's, uh, what's your port to call? Which one do you think is, uh, is working best for you? Mm -hmm. That is a magical question. I think... 
think Facebook might be working the best for me now. And I've been one of those kind of, you know, started out with Facebook. So that's probably why it works the best for me because I have the longest track record of consistency there. Um, I started also, you know, putting my toes in LinkedIn and Instagram and I'm not as gifted at using them. I have a suspicion that LinkedIn might be the next place that I'm meant to really get comfortable. And when I do that, it might help and things might take off more in that arena. Uh, and as of now, because I've been on Facebook since 2008 or something like that and got consistent somewhere in the middle there, it's the one where I feel like I'm finding my people and they're finding me the most. Okay, excellent, excellent. So Laurie, totally enjoyed our conversation. You might let people know where they can find you. Best place to find me is to go to my website. It's voice-matters.com. And there are links to all of my socials at the bottom of the page there. And uh, an and opt-in for the Visionary Souls Guide to Authentic Speaking, if they feel like staying in touch even more. Excellent. I'll make sure I put that both in the audio and the video. Thank you very much. Thank you. So that's all for the Speaking Podcast. You'll find all our episodes on speakingpodcast.com. As mentioned, we're on YouTube and BitChute. You'll find the links in the podcast description. Be sure to give us a thumbs up, five-star rating. Really helps. Until next week, take care. <laughs>